Welcome to Race and Democracy, a podcast on the intersection between race, democracy, public policy, social justice, and citizenship. On today's podcast, we are pleased to welcome a friend of the podcast uh, who's going to be a guest here for the very first time, Robert Martin Seda Schreiber, who is the chief activist and head of the Bayard Rustin Center for Social Justice. Robert has been a school teacher for over 25 years, uh, who established New Jersey's first middle school gay-straight alliance. He's been honored as a New Jersey state champion of equality, has served as a Fulbright scholar in Japan, received two Senate proclamations recognizing his service to the community, uh, and has been named NEA's social justice activist of the year. He's named after a Kennedy and a King. He marched on DC in the womb and has since followed the path each and every day of his life. His boots have already been on the ground, both literally and figuratively. Uh, Welcome Robert Martin to Race and Democracy. It is an extraordinary pleasure, my friend, to be here. Well, we've just finished Pride Month and I wanna introduce our uh, listeners, really who was Bayard Rustin what is the mission of the Rustin Center uh, for Social Justice? Uh, you all have received so much publicity, rightfully so, of late. A letter from Barack Obama, uh, Valerie Jarrett, uh, one of Obama's chief advisors, was a guest on the Rustin Center Power Hour. Um, you've been doing um, such big, deep, infa- impactful work, but in the context of all the racial justice uprisings, the Black Lives Matter uprisings, Uh, the Bayard Rustin Center has made an even bigger uh, imprint um, connecting LGBTQIA movements to racial justice movement and and Black Lives Matter. So I want you to tell us, what what does the Rustin Center do? Who was Bayard Rustin? Why is this so important? Well, I thank you so much for uh, asking the question. And um, the answer is uh, quite robust, so I'll do my best in being expedient um, but Shakespeare has never been a fan of mine, as brevity is not the soul of my wit. Um, Bayard Rustin, first and foremost, was um, the inspiration for the Freedom Riders. He was the primary architect of the march uh, on Washington in 63. He is the one that came to Dr. King and convinced him to uh, create the nonviolent uh, platform of the civil rights movement. In fact, when Bayard Rustin went to King's house, um, and this is the story that, that I am familiar with, it may be apocryphal, but I, I choose to tell it. Um, Coretta said to Dr. King, um, I think we've made it. So Rustin was always a very important figure in the civil rights movement. And when he went that night, um, King and Rustin argued from dusk to dawn about the the impact of what nonviolence would bring to the movement. In fact, King had guards at his house at that moment with guns, uh, and rightfully so. His family was threatened each and every day, um, physically, emotionally, psychologically, but he saw the change through Bayard Rustin's teachings, and I think it was incredibly impactful for the civil rights movement moving forward. He also, you know, did these other great things. Bayard Rustin Um, brought the peace symbol itself to America. He was at a nuclear disarmament rally in 1958 in England, 
and he brought that symbol back with him. Um, he also coined the term speaking truth to power. So Bayard Rustin was this incredibly important figure in so many different communities, yet his name was lost to history, his very identity excised out of history books. And when, let, let, me, let me interject here. And when you think about Bayard Rustin, obviously he's, he's, he's a gay black man. Why was his name lost to history despite all of these, these accolades and the impact that he had on the civil rights movement and the peace movement, uh, gay rights, just so many different social movements? Well, the, that again, that answer it goes to so many different threads. First and foremost, he was out and proud. He was not ashamed of his identity. He identified as a gay man at a time when not only was it not fashionable, but it was literally something he could be arrested for, and he was. Um, so everybody realized, himself included, that he had to take a background in the movement, he would be a, a mover and shaker and do things uh, behind the scenes, but he could not be seen, he could not be heard, he could not be recognized. And that unfortunately followed him almost his entire life. He was only recognized pretty much after his death. Uh, President Obama posthumously awarded him the Medal of Freedom. His partner, Walter Nagel, was there to, to accept the honor. But Bayard never received those accolades. But here's the thing about Bayard is that he never wanted those accolades. He wanted to do the work. The work was what was most important to him. You know, he was the godfather of intersectionality some 20, 30 years before Kimberly Crenshaw even coined the term. So what we try to do at the center is carry on his name, his spirit, his energy, and the power that he held by holding on to his identity, but also moving forward, not only his communities, not only the people of color, not only the LGBTQI community, but he saw the impact it had on so many other folks who could come together. You know, he was um, huge in the movement of unionization and making sure that workers had rights and were protected. He knew that was a, a, such a huge part of the struggle of the LGBTQI community, of people of color. And I think now is the moment, you were mentioning how the center now is getting a lot more notice and we're thrilled about that, not for our own sake, but it means that Bayard Rustin's name, his mission, his identity is being recognized. And I think this is a moment that we hope will become a movement. This is a moment where all our communities are finally realizing that we can come together not by trying to homogenize everything, but recognizing, respecting, and shouting out our differences in the name of the same struggle of being no longer marginalized, no longer forgotten, no longer disrespected, but coming to the forefront and having people recognize that our voices, our identities, our very beings need to be all that is in our society. I want to talk about intersectionality because, like you said, uh, Rustin talked about intersectionality before Kimberly Crenshaw, but certainly Black feminists, Black women activists, including um, LGBTQIA activists, have been talking about feminism since the 18th and 19th centuries. So we're thinking Ida B. Wells and Mariah Stewart and uh, Sojourner Truth, Anna Julia Cooper, uh, Lorraine Hansberry, Audre Lorde, Barbara Smith. 
Um, and now Barbara Ransby, Opal Tometi, Patrice Khan Colors. I want to discuss um, intersectionality in the context of Black LGBTQIA activism and protest, because within the LGBTQIA community historically, there has been racism, there's been classism, um, there's been anti-Black racism, which at times has really uh, impacted and virtually silenced Black uh, LGBTQIA um, activists and just people, teenagers, when we're thinking about uh, those who are HIV positive or disproportionately Black, those who are sexually trafficked, assaulted, killed, uh, murdered, uh, victims of domestic violence. So I want to ask and talk about what the Rustin Center is doing in this space, but what we should all be doing in this space. Uh, the New York Times has a new uh, a report that there's been almost 5,000 protests uh, since May 25th, uh, with anywhere between 15 and 26 million people having participated. So this is the largest uh, political mobilization for Black dignity and citizenship in American history by far. So what can be done on the ground? We saw the mass protests for Black trans lives in Brooklyn recently, thousands and thousands of people. And so we've seen some of the biggest mobilization, both for civil rights and human rights, uh, ending racism, ending white supremacy, but specifically for Black LGBTQIA uh, communities. So when you think about white allyship, within and outside of the LGBTQIA communities, what can be done to really push anti-Black racism, um, uh, anti-racism rather, in those spaces? Because for so long, the Black side of those spaces, even within, you think about Pride Month, and I know the Rustin Center absolutely pushes back against this, but what can we do to scale this up? Yeah, that's a great question, and it's, it's definitely the challenge of our times, right, that we want to make sure that we are respecting the platform of Black Lives Matter and, and making sure that, that our, our we want to defund the police, we want to abolish prisons, we want to make sure that all those primary goals are things that we consider and we move forward, but at the same moment, we can embrace each other and say, okay, Black lives matter. And then we also can say right afterwards, black trans lives matter. Right. And you mentioned the, the uh, movement in Brooklyn, the rally that was uh, about two weeks ago now that had tens of thousands of folks. And, and one of the organizers of that was Raquel Willis, who we had on our power hour a couple of weeks ago. And she's in a tremendously important and powerful voice. I think one of the things we need to really into action is twofold, especially when we talk about white allyship, right? Is one that we stand and we make sure that we are there to protect with our bodies and our energy, but then we stand aside and pass the mic, both literally and figuratively, at every opportunity possible. I think these are things that we have to not only uh, in platitude and ideal anymore, but in reality and performance. I think that one of the things we also have to consider is that the great um, thought behind what is an ally, what is um, an advocate, and what is a co-conspirator, and how do we move up that level, and how do we find our space in there 
to help our communities best come together. Now, when you think about this idea of co-conspirators, I know one of the slogans of the Rustin Center for Social Justice is uh, this idea, quote, from Bayard Rustin, we need in every community a group of angelic troublemakers. So I want to talk about that troublemaker um, and that co-conspirator in, in really more detail, because certainly I agree with everything that you've been saying and how our white allies have to really amplify the voices of Black leadership. In this case, I want to talk about specifically Black LGBTQIA leadership. What specifically, um, when we think about policies that will be uh, implemented for the LGBTQIA community, and like Dr. King said with radical citizenship, not just um, obliterating the transphobic and the, 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 the policies that are oppress the LGBTQIA community, but institutionalizing policies uh, that center uh, Black LGBTQIA lives and their futures. Um, what can we do, both the Rustin Center, but what can we all do as citizens and keep this foremost when we're thinking about our activism and braiding this into whatever we're interested in, environmental activism, educational activism, defund the police, abolish prison, voting rights. What, what are the steps we should be taking and what should be, we be thinking on this, on this issue? Well, first and foremost, remember the intersectionality does not only refer to groups and to people, but to issues. So as you said, putting all those issues together and realizing there's one foundation behind them all, and that's there are there's systemic racism, systemic transphobia. There's always going to be a group of folks that are looking to push the next group down, right? So once one group is accepted into society or, you know, at least um, on a superficial level, then we look at the next group that's going to be marginalized. And right now, you know, it was it was trans folks for a while. And then when people push back against that, thankfully, then it was black trans folks, right? They're always going to look to marginalize a smaller and smaller group because they're always looking to drive a wedge between us so we cannot organize, so we cannot unionize, so we cannot see that our collective struggle is one. And how do we do that on an institutional level? We never disparage any opportunity we have to speak up and out. You know, whether it is we just um, represented and helped a teenage young woman uh, in a very small community here in New Jersey who wanted to do a vigil for George Floyd. And she asked us if we would help her to organize, and we were thrilled to be a part of that. And we kept our part of it in the background just to help her amplify her voice and what she wanted to do. And of course, you know, that's not a national level. That's not going to get us much exposure. What it's going to do, though, is do the true work that we need to do. And what happened is we had hundreds of people come out in this community, a town that barely has hundreds of folks in their citizenship, came out, spoke out, and were introduced to these concepts. So when I spoke at that rally, you know, we had other folks talking about defunding the police. We had other folks talking about abolishing the prisons. We had other folks respecting and recognizing and shouting out George Floyd's name and the other victims of police oppression. So what we did as the Rustin Center, when we spoke, we spoke about black trans folks 
specifically, you know, and in even small things, and this may seem superficial, this may seem inconsequential, but small things, when you think about language, when you think about saying, ladies and gentlemen, and how even that needs to be adjusted. And it's something we're all used to, especially myself as a former school teacher. That's what I said to my students. And I have to catch myself. And it's easy enough. You adjust your language by saying such things as ladies and gentlemen and our non-binary friends. And it means the world. It really does. And these small things then become larger things. And we get to be at a round table with uh, Senator Bob Menendez of New Jersey to speak up about these issues. We get to be at um, the advocates panel with Governor Murphy to make sure these voices are being heard. We make sure we send, we send the right folks, we send the right representation, we make sure that we are committed again to the idea of passing the mic, that we are there when we need to be there, so voices are amplified. But once those voices are amplified, step the heck back. Now, I want to ask you about white gay male power both at the political, social, economic, cultural level. Because when I read uh, Black trans literature and read about Black lesbian and gay uh, activism, they, they have a real critique of, at times, white uh, male gay activism and white lesbianism, too, that is very, very mainstream, that can be very, very powerful and popular, both when we think about our politics and our, our, our culture, when you think about gay sports stars um, who are white, but have really shied away from defending black, gay, lesbian, transsexual, uh, non-binary, just, you know, just, just really have not talked about that. What can we do on that score? How can we make, because some, uh, uh, some of these figures are very, very powerful. You think about um, somebody like Ellen DeGeneres, or you think about uh, Megan Rapino, who has stood in solidarity, um, but many of them don't. Many don't. And what is the disconnect there, where you have um, these white, gay, and lesbian uh, figures who are powerful, who are active on behalf of that specific community and on certain issues like gay marriage, uh, same-sex marriage? But when it comes to talking about these issues. Of, of, of poverty and marginalization and oppression and brutality against black, uh, gay and lesbian and transsexual and non-binary um, folks, they're silent. They're really, really silent. And so what, what is going on there? Because I know when I read the literature, that is a big discussion that's still going on, that's still happening. Yeah, this indeed is problematic, unfortunately. And if I may, I'll tell you a story that I think that, you know, again, you know, I, I try not to talk in platitudes and ideals. I try to tell stories. I try to give concrete examples. So we hosted, we organized the first Pride Parade ever in Princeton, New Jersey last year. And that was pretty phenomenal in and of itself that there wasn't a Pride event before. And it begged the question of why not? That's a separate issue. After we organized the parade, which had 3,000 folks in the street, um, we held a meeting for the queer community because one of the things that folks asked us about was, did you go to the community and talk to them about what they wanted to see at this pride event? And what we found was there were a whole mess of individuals, but there was no community. There was no collective. So we created that out of whole cloth. Our community outreach coordinator, Carol Watchler, has been doing this work for five decades now. 
created a queer community. And we had our first event. We had a potluck. So we could come together, get to know each other, know what the concerns of the community now who were being empowered and organized were. And the event was a tremendous success. We expected maybe a dozen, maybe 20 or so people. And we had over 50. It was wonderful. And we were so proud of ourselves. And the next day we were you know, really thrilled at what we were able to accomplish. And our intern came to us, who was from Harvard Divinity. And our intern was a transgender individual. And they said the entire evening they were misgendered. The entire evening, their identity was not recognized, not respected. And they were sorry to come to me to tell me this because they knew how excited we were about this occasion and how successful it was. And the first thing I said to them is, don't ever apologize for representing yourself, for speaking up and out for yourself. And this is what we need to do about it. And at the cost of perhaps losing this community, that we had tried so hard to organize and offending them, we actually uh, put out a statement from our intern with our full support behind it, saying we have to recognize every member of our community. And it can't just be some members or this distinct faction of the community. It has to be all of us or none of us. And what was thrilling about that is the response was nothing but positive. And I truly think that folks just need education. They need to be aware. They need to recognize. They need to understand that they are indeed leaving people behind when they're not recognizing all people in any community, in any faction of our society. And this is why this moment is so ideal and so extraordinary, because I think we have that opportunity to do that. and. If we just speak up and out and never apologize and never allow ourselves to be put in the background, I think that we have a tremendous opportunity to make that difference and, again, to make this moment into a movement and make sure that we are all recognized at the same time in the same struggle. Yeah, and I think it's already a movement, Robert Martin. I would say that this movement is really coming out of the Black Lives Matter movement of 2013 that has really helped ignite March for Our Lives and Black LGBTQIA plus allies, uh, immigration rights, uh, Muslim rights, uh, um, you know, gun control, um, so many different, the women's marches, so many different um, marches, and now has coalesced into this real um, intersectional call for Black dignity and citizenship, but that intersects with LGBTQIA, that intersects with uh, the rights of, of immigrants and poor people and HIV positive and uh, people who have mental health and who are living under segregation, economic impoverishment, the criminal justice system, just every aspect. So we think about reparations, we think about all these issues. One thing I'd like to discuss with you is political power, because we know Barack Obama did not support gay marriage until it became, in his mind, more politically feasible but I would argue it's really once there was a social justice movement big enough to mandate that the president would support uh, gay marriage, which should have been supported decades ago. Um, what can we do to cultivate political power in LGBTQIA, Black LGBTQIA, white, Latinx, 
where that is such a powerful voting block and a civic block uh, that is talking about radical public policy transformations at the local, at the state, at the federal level, to the point that no one can ignore that group and no one dares to try to pass uh, transphobic and homophobic and anti-queer policy agendas connected to bathrooms, connected to schools, just connected to any single fabric of our lives in our society. What can be done on that score? Well, I think first and foremost, we have to find folks who are willing to run for public office, who are willing to run for you know, the town council to start with, and then mayorships, and then state senators, and so on and so forth. And that's problematic in and of itself, because you don't want to foist the responsibility on folks who are already fighting and who are already tired and who already have been doing this for, as you said, decades, right? Um, so how do we create a powerful platform enough that people cannot deny it? And I think it's what we've seen over the past two months, what we've seen, you can't deny it, it has to be out on the streets every day. And that's, that's the reason where you and I, you know, have a difference of language where you say, you know, it's already a movement and it is, it is already a movement, obviously. And it's been a movement not only for years, but for decades. But how do we create that movement and make it more of a nationally recognized and put on a national platform? And I think the way we do that is many fold is by making sure that we are never not seen, that we're always seen, whether it's someone like uh, Genesette Guterres from um, the La Familia, the trans liberation queer movement, who, um, for lack of a better term, heckled. President Obama at a press conference as he was talking about um, DACA and, and Dreamers and how we help our immigrant families. And she said, what about our queer families? What about our trans families? And she was able to have her voice heard. We need to make sure that we're in the places where voices can be heard, where we can be seen. And maybe it's first as um, a rally, a protest, and if need be an uprising, but then make sure that we are on the other side of it, that we're the ones at the podium, on the mic, with the power. And it's going to take time. It's going to take effort. It's going to take energy on all our parts. It's going to take support from our white allies, from our cisgender allies, from our straight allies. But it's also going to take time and effort from the communities where these voices need to come from. All right. My my. My last question, but this you can take your time answering this, um, is really connected to where do we go from here? Uh, you've been alluding to that, but I'm thinking in in five years, what will we have wanted to see changed and transformed, and not just in terms of elections and, and politics, but just in terms of culture and resources within um Black LGBTQIA communities, but really across uh, the United States and across the world when we think about how much these issues intersect, how much people's lives intersect. Um, when will we have known we've made some real measurable progress? And I'm thinking both nationally, but also the Rustin Center, I'm thinking about the metrics, um, whether you're thinking about is this resources and fundraising? Is it outreach? the number of people you're you're reaching, both in terms of you as 
as the chief activist there, but also in terms of the center? Um, what 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 will be our our evidence that this really is a movement and not just a moment of m- massive political uh, mobilization uh, for for freedom and citizenship um, for Black Lives Matter, but really this idea of centering Black LGBTQIA. And one thing I should note to everyone is that a movement for Black Lives, the policy agenda does a beautiful job of really centering Black LGBTQIA uh, communities and and their issues as part of that Black Lives Matter agenda. Yeah, and that's a beautiful thing and one that that we can take um, great lessons from, right? That we cannot wait for things to be palatable. We cannot wait for things to be acceptable. You know, our nation has uh, a dark problematic history with politicians and with folks in various communities waiting for things to be popular and not moving forward on essential things that will help all of our communities. I think it's it's finally a recognition that when one group moves forward, we all move forward. You know, and you go all the way back to the women's movement you know, when they had their first women's conference and there was a huge debate and argument about um, a platform for our lesbian sisters and allowing that voice to be heard. And there was tremendous blowback about that. And we have to stop that kind of infighting and that kind of lack of recognition of all of our communities, how we all are, again, we, we go back to the intersectionality of it all. And intersectional is not only about the women's movement recognizing their lesbian voices. It's not about Black Lives Matter repre- representing the queer community. It's about at our dinner table and realizing who is sitting amongst us. And, you know, where do the people of color, where do our black and brown friends, where do our LGBTQI friends where do our non-binary friends, where do our et cetera, et cetera, folks who need to be seen? And how do we get people, not only on a political level, not only on a national level, but as you said, this is a worldwide movement now. We have folks in other countries having Black Lives Matter rallies, having vigils for George Floyd. It's an amazing moment and it needs to be crystallized and move forward in a way that's not just about slogans or logos or what companies are going to um, promote their voice by having their um, faces or their names smacked on something that will take advantage, but how do we make sure that they are um, accountable for their practices? How many folks in their executive branch are black or brown, are queer, are non-binary? How are they hearing the voices that need to be heard? Um, Because that's the only way it happens. If the authentic voices are there in those boardrooms, in those offices, in those political arenas, in the state house, on the federal level, but also, you know, as we defund the police, how do we find those voices a place in the community um, to make sure that they're heard as well? You know, we've talked about this. When there is someone who is having a psychological or emotional issue 
And how incredible would it be that it's not a police officer police officer shows up to that event, but a mental health professional, a therapist. And if they are a person of color, how great would it be for a black or brown person to show up? And if they are a queer individual, how great would it be for someone from the LGBTQI community to show up? How do we put those platforms in place to make sure that we are ready when people say, what are we going to do? This is what we're going to do. This is the way forward. So not only do we elect people to office that represent the true nature of our country and who we are, but how do we get people on the ground level, as we like to say, boots in the ground, how do we get boots in the ground of the people who are really going to go out and represent and be able to authentically, passionately empower and vocalize for all our communities? All right. That is a great, eloquent way to end, end this podcast um, on, a, on a note of hope. Uh, we've been talking with Robert Martin Seda Schreiber, who's the chief activist of really one of the most important uh, social justice organizations uh, that is around right now in the United States, the Bayard Rustin uh, Center uh, for Social Justice. Uh, they have a great social justice power hour that's on weeknights from 7 to 8 p.m., Eastern Standard Time. Um, Robert Martin is an extraordinary activist, social justice, civil rights leader, um, anti-racist, LGBTQIA, uh, pro-Black Lives Matter um, activist who's really interested in intersectional justice. And so we're definitely honored to have him here uh, with us today. And I think we all have this generational opportunity uh, to transform American democracy at this point in history. Um, to achieve our country. I think that we should all know who Bayard Rustin is. Uh, We should read about him um, and understand his legacy and how important his legacy is uh, to the time period that we're all in now. So Robert Martin Seda Schreiber, Chief Activist for the Bayard Rustin Center for Social Justice, thank you so much for joining our program today. Thank you, my friend. I just want to say that you and your work has been such an inspiration for us. And uh, the newest book, Sword in the Shield, is just such an incredible um, testament to what we can look to our history um, to enlighten and empower our future. So thank you for that gift to our community as well. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode. And you can check out related content on Twitter at Peniel Joseph, that's P-E-N-I-E-L-J-O-S-E-P-H, and our website, csrd.lbj.utexas.edu, and the Center for Study of Race and Democracy is on Facebook as well. This podcast was recorded at the Liberal Arts Development Studio at the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you. Thank you.